Hello, I'm Professor Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today we are talking property. In this podcast, I talk with Professor John Nolan, who's a professor with me at the Elizabeth Haub School of Law at Pace University. Professor Nolan is beloved by all, particularly because of his commitment to real estate and land use. In fact, he started the Land Use Law Center at our school, one of the first in the country. So today we talk about mortgages, and it's amazing what I learned, even though I have a mortgage. Before we get started, a few disclaimers. First, always remember you take the professor, not the course. So if this is not your professor, then keep in mind Your professor may talk about things that are not discussed on our podcast or vice versa. Second, this is just intended as an overview. We don't necessarily get in the nitty-gritty. Okay, let's talk about mortgages. So thank you for coming to talk to me and especially about mortgages. I have a mortgage. I pay a mortgage. I studied mortgages for the bar, and that's as much as I can tell you about mortgages. So I'm interested to learn about mortgages. Well, it is a really fun subject. You can't believe how much fun we're going to have. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what are mortgages for purposes of learning about mortgages, I should say? Well, there's so many different approaches to it. In medieval times, the 13th century, the mortgage stood for the, the dead pledge. And basically, after you use your land to get a mortgage like you have, Mm -hmm. you couldn't do anything with it until you completely paid off the mortgage. And so it didn't allow you any freedom to alienate your property or to do anything with your property. Nobody would give you more more, uh, debt on the property. Nobody would let you, would buy it from you. So I could use it, but I couldn't sell it. That's exactly right. It just killed the property. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, dead. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to hear a... A little highfalutin example of what what that means. Yes. Okay. In 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 uh, property law, we we talk about different ways that people can own land, mm-hmm. and one way is um, a fee simple on a condition subsequent. Oh You've my god! You probably heard of that, right? <laughs> years ago. Yes. Right? Five years ago, when you were in law school. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we still use those. For example, if I wanted to sell you my land, but say you can't ever grow tobacco on it because I really don't like tobacco, mm-hmm. I could sell it to you so long as tobacco is not grown on the land. And then if tobacco is grown on the land, you'd lose that ownership right. Fee simple on a condition subsequent. The mortgage at common law was the same thing. Okay. I am conveying to you my property. You're the You're the lender. You, Leslie, are the bank. Okay, I'm the bank. Okay. <clears throat> You're loaning me money. Okay. And so I convey to you my fee simple absolute ownership mm-hmm. subject to mm-hmm. paying off the mortgage. We still think of it that way, even though that's not the way it actually works. It's not a dead pledge anymore. It's just a lien on the property. So if I sell it, I can't transfer the property to someone else until I pay the bank back what I owe the bank. Depends upon what the mortgage says. Usually the mortgage does say that these days. You've got to pay off the mortgage before you can sell Mm-hmm. The property. And all right, can I ask you a seriously silly question, or maybe not so I silly? I charge for personal legal, legal <laughs> advice. Like, why is it called fee simple? What is that? That always. What is? What does fee simple mean? Why do they use the words fee simple? 
Is there a reason? Oh, I love these questions. It comes from the medieval term theftment, and you can be in theft of your property. That means you get season to it. You take it by what was called at, at common law, livery of season. It was a ceremony okay. where you actually went out to the property and picked up a rock and gave it to the transferee. Okay. And that was witnessed by the people from the village, and you had delivered the season to the property. That's what they called it. The season is sort of like seizing, right? Okay, yeah. Like not, the, not the government depended. Yeah. The government depended upon the ownership of property because the people who were the owners of property were also the ones that owed the night service to the king and the military dependent on it. And the taxing system was all based upon ownership of land. So to be seized of land was almost what it sounds like in English today. You are the controller, the owner of that land. Okay. You're, you're seized of it. So the way that that worked was it was called a fee because you were in theft. That was a medieval term, okay. Norman, for having title to property. So today the fee, simple, absolute, right. is the best type of ownership you can have. When I buy land, right. and am I taking that land, if I don't have a mortgage on that land, I don't have to pay anyone for that land, I'm paying for it fully in cash, am I taking it as fee, simple, absolute? Yes. What that really means today is that there are no encumbrances to your title. Aha! That makes perfect yeah, sense. Even though okay. you have a mortgage, it's still fee simple absolute because we don't think of the of the mortgages constituting a transfer of title subject to defeasance later when you've paid off the mortgage. We don't think of it like that. Right. It's just, I own fee simple absolute, and I have a mortgage, and that's a lien on the property. Right. But you if can... you bought the land from me, you'd have to take it subject to the mortgage unless the mortgage required that we pay it off, mm-hmm. in which case you'd take title to the property without the mortgage. Perfect. So when I buy land under fee simple absolute, if it's a fee simple absolute, that means that I am free to transfer it. Absolutely. Got it. Yep. Great. And alienability is one of those fundamental property rights that we care so much about in, right. our, in our country. Okay. Got it. There you go. Is that what I need to know from mortgages? or Well, like- I, there's a lot going on in this topic. When, when I teach real estate transactions in my property class, mm-hmm. We have a, a closing that we do in class where there's a seller and a buyer and there's a wow. bank and the bank is giving a mortgage and there's title insurance and the title insurance company has a lawyer there and the bank has a lawyer, seller has a lawyer, the buyer, and the broker, of course, is there to collect her commission. Okay. Right? And there are all these people around the table. What's being done there is that a contract that the buyer and seller entered into is being closed. In other words, the promise of the seller to sell the fee simple absolute to the buyer right. is being closed. So okay. the deed will be transferred to the new buyer. Got it. At that point, the old mortgage has to be satisfied. Right. So that bank may be present and its lawyer to be sure that there's a satisfaction piece executed that can be put on the land records to get rid of that mortgage on the on the land records. Okay. And then the deed is transferred. Right. And then that document goes on the land records to show that the buyer now has the full fee simple title. Mm-hmm. And then the new mortgage is executed at the closing. Okay. And then that is put on the land records to show somebody who might be interested in buying the property later that the buyer has title but subject to a mortgage. And that can all be found on the land records. Okay. So the mortgage is a part of this whole complex sort of puzzle that constitutes real estate transactions and finance, which most law firms practice. Most medium-sized law firms have significant number of closings and transactions every mm-hmm. year 
that they do, and a lot of our students are going to be practicing that area of law. Right, and it's on the board, too. And it's on the board, yeah. It is. We saw some people struggling with that. So I understand. So, And that that's why it's so important to teach mortgages in property law, because mortgage is on the property, and you can't transfer the property if there's right. any encumbrances, and the mortgage has a potential to be an encumbrance. Right. Okay, got it. Right. Would you ever test on mortgages? I mean, oh, how did, in my property class? Yeah. absolutely. So how how would something like that look <clears throat> on an exam? Well, what what would you call? I'm going to test you. Okay. Oh gosh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what is a technical term for the person who owns the land subject to the mortgage? The mortgagor. Okay. Making the mortgage right. is the mortgagor. Right. So and I the would bank's test the you. And the bank is a mortgagee. If I'm giving you the mortgage, pledging my land for your money, right? I'm signing a personal note for four hundred thousand dollars. Even if you're a bank, you're assigning that note, right? Well, no. If okay. I'm if I'm if I'm the oh, yes. buyer of the property, this is a single up. family house transaction. The hypo is, it's a five hundred thousand dollars single family house deal. Right. Do you have you probably have an idea of about how much of that five hundred thousand dollars would be supplied by the mortgagee? Correct. It's about four hundred thousand. Yeah, like eighty percent. Eighty percent exactly. Right. Okay, so the skin in the game of the mortgage e is much greater than of the mortgagor. Right. right? So the mortgagor has to come to the closing with twenty percent, and the mortgagee comes to the closing with eighty percent. Okay. That's why the bank's attorney is there. That's why we hold the closing in the bank's office. That's why the bank is so important, because they're making the deal happen. I see. Right? So, but then if you pull that thread out of the real estate transaction, the mortgage thread out, mm-hmm. you're saying, okay, with respect to that transaction, who is the actor? And the actor is the mortgagor. And that's why we call them the mortgagor, because they're making the mortgage. They're right. pledging their land to security. I see. Because it's counterintuitive. You feel it like is. it should be the mortgagee. Yes. But it's the mortgagor is the person who's taking that's, out the mortgage. But, see, that's why. I remember Don Dornberg went to a, <laughs> we don't often, many of us as law school professors, go learn how to teach. Right. You remember, maybe remember 20 years ago, Don went off to a oh, yeah, that class, yes. class on Mushroom, learning how to teach. Yeah, two professors here at Pace, yeah. Right, and he came back and told us about what he learned. And he said, the thing I learned, the most important thing I learned is that we know too much. And we assume that the students are going to follow what we have to say. Don't do that. Right. You've got right. to slow down. That's why the Socratic method is so important. Right. And you have to figure out where the students are and meet them there. Right, because they've never experienced any of this, and we've right. been living and breathing it for however many years. Right. So if I come in living and breathing mortgagors, mortgagees, right. S&Es, all that right. kind of stuff, people say, well, what, S&E? That sounds like somebody's getting shot. Right. <laughs> right? And the mortgagor clearly should be the bank. Right, right. Right? So right. I, that's the kind of thing that I expect people to have to learn in the first instance. That's kind of 101 stuff. Which, to be fair, I think I thought I was a mortgagee, and now I know I'm a mortgagor because mm-hmm. I am paying a bank. Right. Wow. Okay. Right. And you're a law professor, so imagine. And I'm a law, law professor. Students, yes. Law students right. don't know that. Right. Right. So it's really a it's a big lesson for me every time I walk into the classroom to just stop and take a deep breath and think, what do the students know, mm-hmm. and how can I meet them there in starting right. the conversation? So uh, quite often in property law. I make an analogy to studying a language mm-hmm. because there's so much vocabulary right. that we have to learn. And so a lot of my 101 testing in a subject like mortgages will be, do you have the vocabulary down? Do you know what the what is the basic transaction here? I see. 
So for mortgages, I have this very complicated case where there's three different pieces of property that are mortgages. There's a there's a first mortgage or there's a second mortgage, first mortgagee, a second mortgagee, and there's an assignment of the second mortgage, and all those people are defendants. Okay. In an action, and there's several different mortgages and several different pieces of property that were leveraged in order to get a bunch of money to do a big deal. Got it. Right. You look at that and you just say, there's no way I can figure that out until I figure out what the issue is that the court is addressing and relate it back to a particular piece of property and figure out how that was dealt with as a piece of the deal. Mm -hmm. And then I can work the deal down and Mm -hmm. getting, that's the sort of 201 level of testing. Can you look at the set of facts and pull out the, 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 the part of that arrangement that the that the court's deciding which piece of property was leveraged, which piece of property is subject to the mortgage, who mm-hmm. had an interest in the mortgage. So it, it here's it, and then here's the three hundred one. Okay, sort of stuff, right? <laughs> I'm still trying to process two hundred one. I know. Two, I know. So, so let me. Can I get to? I want to just repeat one hundred one yeah. and two hundred one. So one hundred one is getting the vocabulary down, understanding who's a mortgagor, who's a mortgagee, who's right. an assinee, everything like that. Yep. 201 would be taking a very simple problem and figuring out which actor is the mortgagor, which actor is the mortgagee, and how they are in relation to the property that's being mortgaged. Right. Now we're at 301. Okay, so 301, here's an example. Let's say that I own my single-family home, and you want to buy it. Okay. And... And I pay off my existing mortgage. I now own it. Fee simple, absolute, subject to no mortgage. And then I decide to lease it to my daughter for a year, figuring I can still sell the house. Nobody will mind that she's living there. Okay. Okay. So now I sell you the property. Right. You take fee simple, absolute to Mm -hmm. it, and you get a mortgage. Okay. Okay. Does the mortgagee, if you default on that mortgage, get to kick my daughter out? During the term of her lease. Well, I'm going to say yes, because the mortgagee... Oh. Yeah, good. Oh, good. Okay. This is why it's 301. I see. Okay, because my inclination is that the mortgagee, <clears throat> the bank, right. takes that property free and clear. But the reality is that when I bought the property, I bought it knowing a tenant was going to live there for one year. Yep. So the mortgagee has to take it with all the encumbrances... You're a great student. You are a great student. <laughs> I feel student. so smart. If I get that far with my class, I'm I'm home. I, wow. I well, that's far. That's that's. It's yeah. not so easy. I can <clears throat> no, it see. isn't. Yeah. And then, if the mortgagee forecloses, does the mortgagee have to name the tenant, my daughter, as a party to the foreclosure proceeding? And the right. answer is no, because what they're foreclosing on has nothing to do with her. Wow, that's four hundred one. That's 401, right? <laughs> that's, and that's, that's the complication here because that's kind of important. Mm-hmm. The, the other interesting thing, which is a 401 issue, is that if a party, let's say that the lease was entered into after you, after you got the, after, let's say that I have a piece of property. Okay. And I mortgage it. Right. And then I lease it to my daughter. Okay. So you, you buy it. You get your mortgage, and after you get your mortgage, without the mortgagee, the bank, knowing, then you lease it to your daughter, okay? Well, as it turns out, the mortgage document itself won't let me do that. Okay, but you did it, even though you weren't allowed to do it. But let's just say I'm allowed to do it. Okay. Okay, let's say I'm allowed to do it. It's fine. The mortgagee says, fine. Okay. She's she's a better occupant of the house than the old guy. Okay. Right? (laughs) She's a great girl. I know her. She is a great girl. Okay, so now you've got... 
me owning the property, mm-hmm. having mortgaged it, and subsequently creating a lease. Okay. Like, let's say it lasts for five years, right. five-year lease. And right. the mortgagee says that's fine. Okay. Okay, now I default. The mortgagee forecloses and fails to serve my daughter with notice of the complaint and foreclosure. In other words, they're bringing a judicial procedure right. before the court. Right. To foreclose on their mortgage, and my daughter's lease is subordinate to the mortgage. I'm going to just... But they don't join her as a party. Well, I need to take a step back to 101 for a second. Yeah. Foreclose means that the bank, when they say they foreclose, that means that they close (coughs) out the deal, take back the property, and kick out the mortgagor? Yes, okay. and they do it through a judicial sale. Okay, so and they've so done a, that, and they have not told the, your daughter right. who's leasing the property. They didn't join But has join no her. interest in the property other than a lease. She has her lease. Okay, that's an interest. Which is, well, yeah. can I can I take a side, a little, a little detour? Yeah, here? are you kidding? Yeah. I, have, I had a, a nephew who, when he was like seven years old, came to me at Christmas mm-hmm. and said, Uncle John, I feel terrible because all of my friends' parents own their homes, and we rent. I said, Lucas, no, you have a non-freehold interest in land. It's a <laughs> lease. You have all the possession. The owner of the place can't come in. Mm-hmm. You can tell them to go away. You own the possession. You can keep people off of it. You can determine what goes in here. You're the king and queen of that particular domain. Mm-hmm. That's great. I own a non-freehold interest in land. He felt better. Okay, good. Right? <laughs> so Christmas present, yeah. Yeah, it was a great Christmas present. So my daughter has a, an estate called a non-freehold estate, a term for years, for five years. Okay. That's the possession of the property. That's a pretty big deal. She right. owns the entire possession of the property. Now, she's subordinate to the mortgage. The mortgagee brings a foreclosure action, right. goes to a foreclosure sale, doesn't join her to the action. Mm-hmm. The court orders the property be sold. Is the buyer taking in a way that can get rid of my daughter, or is the buyer going to have to put up with my daughter being on the property? Well, I'm going to guess, and I'm guessing because I don't teach property law, that the buyer has to put up with your daughter because the buyer should have done some discovery of what they were buying back. Right. That lease was a five-year lease. Mm -hmm. It has to be in writing. Okay. It's going to go on the land records. Right. And when... The purchaser at the foreclosure sale buys the title. Is going, they're going to find that that lease exists, and that party wasn't joined. And if the party is not joined, she doesn't have the opportunity to defend her position, right? Mm-hmm. So she's not subject to the to the to the foreclosure. So there. So, all right. I just I have a couple questions because this is so interesting to me, actually. All right. So. Bill owns a house. Okay. Bill, the mortgagor, has a $100,000 mortgage on the house with People's Bank. Right. He owns the house as of June 1st. On August 1st, he leases the house to Jenny for five years. Right. Does he have an obligation to file that lease with somebody? No, but Jenny's lawyer, this is what is what this is what we do in real estate transactions law here. Okay. You know, Pace Law School has a strong concentration in real estate and land use law. Yeah. And the two are practiced hand in hand by most law firms. And uh, a national reputation of it, not just Thank you very much. They do. Yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. you got, for building it up. The oldest and largest land use law center in the country. Wow. 
So wow. we, this is one, this is the kind of thing that we teach. You, mm-hmm. you, when you when you sign a contract to buy a piece of property, there's a provision that says you take it subject to all governmental regulations. That's land use law. Right. So as an attorney, you have to know land use law mm-hmm. to be a real estate attorney. Got it. Right. So you're taking subject to law that says that you can't build a single family house on that property. You better know that right. and tell your client not to buy it. Right. Right. In the in the contract, we end up going to the we end up going to the closing mm-hmm. and we look at the land records, the recording of, of various interests and in estates on the property, and we will find all outstanding easements, leases, mechanics liens, judgments against the owner of the property. And we'll look at the owner of the property in the grantor index and see that the grantor granted a lease to a grantee named Jenny. Right. And Jenny's attorney would be trained by us to be sure to put that lease on the land records. Okay. So now when the closing at the foreclosure sale happens, Mm -hmm. there's constructive notice because it's on the land records that Bill owns the house and that the People's Bank has a mortgage and that there's an outstanding lease. Right. And, and they, look at the, they look at the record of the judicial foreclosure and say, that lessee was not noticed, didn't participate. I'm not going to take title subject. I'm not going to take title and be able to boot her off the property. Okay. I see. Although her lease is subordinate to the mortgage. Right. Now, and if, if I mean, this may be not within the scope of your class, but if her attorney did not file that lease with anyone, then he messed up. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so the difference between being an owner which is where mortgages kind of fully kick in, and being a renter, right? Yep. Is that the owner has the right to possess and sell the property. Right. The lesser has the right to possess the property. Lessee. Lessee. Oh, see? It's the same thing. There you go. All right. Right. So the lessee, not the lessor, the lessee, right? The owner owns a property, and therefore is the lessor when there's a lease. Right. And the tenant is the lessee. The tenant is the lessee. See there, okay, so there's where it's kind of counterintuitive to me because the tenant is the lessee and the owner is the lessor, right? right? But in mortgages, the bank is the mortgagee, even though they're putting in more money. Right. But the the person who is taking out the mortgage is the mortgagor. Right. Because the mortgagor is the one who has the property and is mortgaging that property. Right. And so you, you tend to think of it from the bank's perspective for the exact reason that you just mentioned, because they're putting in the lion's share of the money. Right. But it's not that way. It's the owner is the lessor. The owner is the mortgagor. Perfect. If the owner is going to sell the property, the owner will become the grantor. Right. Okay. Right? The person with the property acting. Got it. Got okay. it. So, All right. So this is amazing. So here's what I know. Okay. I know that I have to understand the terms before I can even go any further. And I know that I didn't quite understand the terms. I understand them now. I know that once I understand the terms, I have to understand how each party relates to those terms. Who's giving the the, uh, mortgage, who's taking the mortgage, who's leasing the property. And I know once I can figure out that relationship, that if there is a problem in practice or on an exam, if we're going to be kind of pragmatic, right. right, that we can figure out what the rights and duties of each party is, right. and we can figure out, because we know who the mortgagor is and what the mortgagor right. mortgaged, et cetera, what happens to everyone's kind of personal stake right. in that property. 
Can I take another little detour? Yes, please. You're absolutely right. What okay. you just said is a perfect summary. Okay. Okay, now, most students come to law school and they take first-year classes and we pretty much convince them that all lawyers do is litigate. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I'm going to I'm going to respectfully agree. I think that television and movies convince people that what lawyers do is litigate. They come in thinking that yes. because of movies and yes. television. Yes. But then what do we do? We teach them torts. We teach torts through we teach torts through cases that are won or lost. That's we true. We teach property through cases that That's are true. won or lost. That's we true. Teach, contracts, true. We teach contracts through cases that That's are won or lost. And all we, it's, if, if this were a medical school, these would be the cadavers. Right. right? <laughs> That's true. And they we're kind of are. And people examine the litigation process. How is a judge going to make, I mean, what are we, what, what's the Socratic method about? How is a judge going to decide this case? What are the precedents? Are the precedents on all fours? Are the precedents controlling? In other words, we're teaching them to litigate all the time. Litigate, litigate, right. litigate. One of the great things about mortgages fitting into the real estate transaction and finance world is that it's transactional. It's not about litigation. So explain the difference because people don't know. Litigation is when you fight in court to resolve an issue. And thank God for litigants, because if we didn't have precedence, we wouldn't know what our rights are. Right, in the American judicial system. <clears throat> right. How would you define transactional? What does that mean when you well, say it's me, transactional? Before I give up on the oh, I'm oh, thank God for okay. litigants, okay. <laughs> we only need precedence on each item. We don't need 12 lawsuits to figure out if there's already a precedent. We don't need to keep litigating it, right? Correct. But we do train people that there's a dispute to advise our client whether or not they're going to win in court. Yes. That's what we do. That is correct. Okay. In transactions, it's just the opposite. Okay. It's exactly the opposite because nobody doing a transaction wants to wait for two or three years for the transaction to be completed until we get done litigating. So the idea behind transactional law is to make deals work. So transaction are the deals, the negotiations. We want to make them work. We don't want to make mistakes. We Mm -hmm. don't want to upset the other party and have them bring a lawsuit for fraud or something post-closing. We don't want that. We've used the property as, as, as security for a mortgage. We're out there using the money to do different things. We don't want that apple cart to be upset, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, here's what's so fun about that, is that the cases are critical in being a transactional attorney because we need to know how to draft so that we don't violate the case law. Right. We need to know how to negotiate right. so that we don't end up in court we want to avoid the traps that the cadavers would teach us in mm-hmm. the courses that we do teach from the perspective of decided cases. Okay. But then there's also this whole thing of the statutory law and regulatory law, right? So when you look at law and you look at transactions, in order to be a transactional attorney, you have to know the common law judicial decisions. Right. You have to know the statutes. Correct. And you have to know the regulations. Right. And you have to know how to draft Right. A document that respects the cases, the regulations, and the statutes. Right. Right. Because if they don't, a court will strike them down or right. invalidate and the deal them. Will, will, the and deal the deal will, will fold. Yeah. will fold. So the, the, the transactional attorneys are much happier people because they're making deals work. But they also are really, they really have to be um, careful because they have to know the cases, they have to know the statutes, they have to know the regulations, and they have to draft well. Mm-hmm. How many matters that get litigated are actually subject to final judgment? It's like less than 5%. I know. And actually, what do you think? I bet you, what percentage of law students end up being transactional lawyers? Oh, way more than 50%. Right. More than litigants. Much litigators. More. Much more. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I've debated that with a few people, and it, at least it's right. 50-50, but I think it's... Oh, I think it's much more than because that. Because even, even if you're a, litig- a litigation attorney, you're, you end up settling. Right. And that's settling a transaction, right? right? That's right. coming up with a deal. Right. Right? Right. So if you don't know, if you don't know how to negotiate, you don't know how to mediate, you don't know how to resolve disputes amiably mm-hmm. in a relatively decent period of time, you're not going to serve your transactional client. Right. And the mortgage is all a little thread that sort of is part of that larger fabric, mm-hmm. right? So what we're really doing in property is teaching, at least what I'm doing in my property class, is teaching transactional law. Interesting. Yeah, yes. which is a counterpoint to torts and contracts as they're typically taught. You know, it's I, I, so I teach torts and I teach contracts, and actually... That's why I came. That's why you came. I'm here to, I'm here to when, convert you. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. Students, whenever I say to students right off the bat, I do not, you know, I don't do property. But um, it's, that's, that's interesting, but it's also important. It's important, first of all, I guess, for a law student to get their head around that. But it's important, too, because the reality is we're not teaching litigators. I mean, I, I would say not only are more lost graduates being transactional than litigating, I would say that the percentage of students who, who turn into lawyers who actually litigate is probably 20%. I have this little diagram that I put on the board at some point during the semester where... It's a, it's a pyramid, and at the base of the pyramid, as you might expect, is property in mm-hmm. big capital letters. Oh. <laughs> and then just above that, yeah. divided into two blocks on the pyramid, mm-hmm. is contracts and torts, right? Mm-hmm. And above that is civil procedure, and above that is criminal law. Wow. Right. And what I say is that we shouldn't do this to you, because I can teach you a case that is with, that has to do with a tort to property, yeah. That involves a contract with respect to property mm-hmm. that ends up in civil litigation mm-hmm. It is also a crime. I can tell you exactly a case that I teach about that. There's a case, um, gosh, in contracts, I can't remember the name of it right off the bat, but somebody agrees to sell someone else a piece of property mm-hmm. and says that it is for sale for, um, it's zoned <clears throat> for rental property. Okay. They put it on the market. Someone agrees to buy it. They buy it thinking it's zoned for rental property. In fact, it was not zoned for rental property. So first of all, it's a property issue because right. they bought the home, right? right? It's a crime because it's the crime of fraud. Right. It's tort because it's misrepresentation. Right. They're in civil court. Right. And they and might get taken, everything. the prosecutor might take them to... To fraud, yeah. To, to court, to, yeah. Uh, as a criminal yeah. law matter, yeah. 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 Mortgages. Yes. Mortgages are essential to... Property law. Yes. And the reason they're essential is because it's about how people finance, how people purchase, how people sell, how people use, meaning leasing, their property. Right. And so it's interesting to me what you've said because, as I said, I know what a mortgage is, but I didn't think about it the way you explained it, which is you really have to start at the beginning. I always tell my students to think of um, Maria. Let's start at the very beginning from the Center of Music. Right. Anyway, um, and so you got to do that 101, as you said, which is learn the terms, which you right. explained so beautifully, and then 201, which is see who's doing what. 301, which is understanding now that you know who's doing what, understanding what the transaction is. Right. And, and what goes wrong and how to fix it. And what goes wrong and how to fix it, which right. is what transactional lawyers do right. unless the parties can't agree. Yep. And then they go into court. Yep. And there's those sad little lonely litigators. <laughs> <laughs> Your word's not mine. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> True. Thank you so, so much. This has really been wonderful and enlightening and 
I feel like I learned. Always great to work with you. Thank you. Okay. All right, take care. Bye-bye. So that's our discussion on mortgages. Hope it was helpful. And if you like what we're doing, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes. Or if you like, you can tweet me at either Fact or at Prof. L.Y. Garfield. Make a suggestion about maybe someone you'd like us to interview or some topic you'd like covered. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time on Law to Fact.